Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Zippy the Wonder Snail. I'm here with my co-commissar, Jason. Hey, Jason, how are you? Hey, Tim. I'm good. I'm just glad our listeners couldn't see you dance right there. Yeah, it probably was for the best. I um, I just had to shake it off. Yeah, that's right. Well, we're going to talk about much more Taylor Swift later on in the show. Absolutely. But first, we should note, this is the first ever episode of Zippy the Wonder Snail to take place during Advent. That is right. We are... We are into Advent. We're getting excited for the birth of our Lord that we celebrate every year. Uh, but it's it's always fresh and new, and there's there's a strange new grace, uh, new mercy that seems to come every year. I I know that you've experienced that too, Tim. Yeah, I, I always love the Christmas season, and I love Advent. Um, you know, we kind of have conflated it with sort of just Christmas preparations and busyness, but the the times to actually pause and reflect, to think about uh, the cry, O come, O come, Emmanuel. It's such a, a, a wonderful time to, to think about what, what our deep, unquenchable need without the Lord is, and then to to approach with anticipation the celebration of God coming and restoring us and answering that need. It's just it's a wonderful season, and uh, I can celebrate Christmas all year long, and not just because that's some cliche that shows up in songs or something. And yet, even even the rhythm of of a dedicated time to think in preparation for His coming and to prepare ourselves to celebrate His coming again uh, helps us. Yes, even though we need to be aware of His coming and His presence in our lives all the time, it's also good to have a season set aside for that. At you know, Lent and Easter can be the same way, uh, and maybe a couple other seasons depending on the way your church celebrates. But it's good to be it's good to be reminded of the things that we already know because it's not that easy. I don't know if the listeners know this, but. For people I know, um, it's not that easy to remember the things that we already know, and that's absolutely that's the struggle of every Christian, and that's that's our struggle at various points in time. So yeah, and I like the way you tie it in with Lent. One thing that struck me years ago when I first read it was how Eastern Orthodox believers will often refer to Advent as the Little Lent, and um, it really is sort of like Lent in that we know something wonderful is coming, but we do pause and think about harder things first, right? Um, Lent, we're thinking about the coming of the crucifixion before we get to Easter, and it's a time to think about our own failings and to, to work to focus our hearts better on the Lord. But really, Advent is too, and it's, I think, so helpful as Christians if we can set aside that time and not allow it to be completely consumed in just the mad rush towards Christmas Day. And even if we engage ourselves in what we might call ascetical practices, we just need to remember that we're not doing that to find favor with God of ourselves. We're doing that to carry the cross with Christ, and He's going on a journey with us and helping us to to uproot um, those things that have distracted us from what He is doing in our lives and what He wants to do in the future. So it's, again, even if we impose a prayer practice on ourselves or we impose a giving practice, some sort of almsgiving, we're not doing it to gain God's favor. We're doing it to go on a journey with Christ in the desert to, to rediscover um, His great love for us and to open ourselves up in a new way to that grace and mercy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes we, 
we look at spiritual disciplines and think of them as, as a negative thing or a workspace thing. I'm going to somehow prove to God my faithfulness through them. And, and it's really um, not that I like that you make that point. It's um, preparing our hearts and helping us to, to be more open to what God is doing and seeing what he's doing and, and having these opportunities for the Holy Spirit to work and transform us. Um, it, it reminds me of what you were writing about in a recent piece on Open for Business, talking about how we have different sorts of celebrations. Certainly our sacred celebrations, the ones that go through the church year and and cause us to reflect on different parts of scripture can be a very helpful way to root ourselves in in truth and the absoluteness of it and the presence of God in it. But then you also point to how we tend to do that with our secular calendar as well, right? Uh, That we, we set aside times because whether we're thinking in a religious mindset or not, we as human beings just like to have these times to to focus our minds on things, uh, whether it's things of God or, or things of earth. Right, and I, I want to make the important point in that piece that not all of the secular observances of things, special days and commemorations that are set aside are a bad thing, but some of them threaten to replace the Christian liturgy, the, rit- the rhythm of the Christian story. And I think there's a significant danger that will replace our fundamental identity in Christ with other things. Um, and those will become like secular holy days, is the way I said it in the piece. And the thing is, for us Christians, we already have holy days, and they're centered around what God has done in Christ. So we need to be careful because some of the stuff in our society meshes well with our Christian identity, and some of it does not at all. And so that's what I was trying to address. And some of that, some of that stuff is uh, is neutral or even good uh, with respect to our Christian identity and our Christian convictions. And some of it is very non-neutral and very hostile. And if we're not discerning, then we can just be carried along by whatever the secular society says oh, this is the important day. We're going to celebrate this day or that day. Um, And it has nothing to do with Christ, and it's even openly hostile to uh, Christ's salvation and Christ's message for all people. So uh, that's what I was going for. I probably didn't describe it quite as well as I would like, um, but that's part of it. And also, uh, one of the the ways that it does this is that um, it's rooted in a relativism that says that any truth claim is is actually a move to power uh, instead of a truth claim offered in good faith. So if everything is a move to power, then we're just groups of people seeking power against one another and not seeking truth and a truth that can be held in common. So it rests on skepticism, a lot of the stuff that's going on in the secular society, meaning We can't know things by reason. We can't find our way together to what is reasonable and what is true and good. So everything's a power play. Um, And if everything is a power play, then we cannot arrive at truth. Um, But the Christian story is one that's rooted in truth himself, not just itself, but himself. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, and, and there's an open-handed way to do that, but at the end of the day, uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And anything else that com- competes with that uh, is eventually going to lose, and and it ought to lose in the hearts of Christians and those who want to be formed by Christ and by the Word of God. So, uh, interesting piece. You can check it out there. Yeah, it's well worth uh, all of our listeners taking a look at it and, and contemplating it. And, and I think especially it's a very fitting time of year for you to bring it up because as we started with it being right 
here in the middle of Advent, you think about that in some sense, this observation of truth that we spend Advent preparing our hearts for, right? Uh, recognizing the truth of our fallenness, recognizing the truth of our need for God to, to redeem us, and then recognizing the truth that he does. These are not things that are parts of a power play. Quite, quite the opposite. Because what do we see? As you said, truth himself is whom we encounter. And truth himself humbles himself. Truth himself comes and comes in the form of a servant, as we're told in Philippians 2. So when God comes and declares truth, ironically, the one who has the most power does so in the way that breaks into our world and in our history in the most humble way possible, which is to take on the punishment that we deserve for us and to to even just to humble himself to the point of dwelling amongst us and putting up with us all that he might call us his sons and his daughters. What that That's what we're, we're observing at Advent. And it's a great reminder that truth is not what we so often hear about in culture that is some way to just force something down people. Um, rather, it's the redemption from the chaos of all those other truth claims we encounter. That's right. And I, I think to put a sharper point on it, we are formed by what we commemorate. So let's be intentional intentional about what we commemorate because we want to be formed by what is true and not just what is popular and fashionable. So, and sometimes that's hard to discern because like I said, not all of the secular observances are bad, but let's root ourselves in Christ and then go from there. I do encourage everyone to check out that piece. It is well worth checking out at right after the show. You should stay for the rest of the show because we have a whole lot more planned, but afterwards, make sure to check it out. Christmas is coming. The snowflakes will be falling. It's the most wonderful time of year. So hang up your stockings, put the tinsel on the tree. Because Christmas is coming, my dear. Well, Christmas is coming, and we had articles on Christmas on Open for Business. And you'll also want to check out that piece we just talked about that Jason put up this week. So you should check out Open for Business, celebrating its 20th year at www.ofb.biz. Something has already come, Jason. Christmas is coming, but something else has arrived after months of anticipation, and that is Taylor Swift's re-recording of Red, or as it's officially known, Red Taylor's version. And here it is, so we need to talk about it. I loved it so much, it should be called Jason's version. What an incredible record. As I listened to it, um, I thought, and I know you've said this, I didn't remember some of these songs on Red. Like, I was there, I listened to it, just like the whole world when it came out. But then I listened to it again, and I was like, where was this when it when it happened? Some of these songs just blew me away, almost like I'd never heard them before, and maybe I haven't. Maybe just a lack of attention or whatever. It's so wonderful, and it does include those brand new songs, uh, as she calls it, from the vault that are on there. And she kind of goes back to her country roots a little bit uh, in a couple of those. And there's another duet with Ed Sheeran, uh, and then there's a, a duet with Chris Stapleton. Uh, so she's gone back in a country direction. She's given us a couple more brand new pop songs, and then she's given us these beautiful, beautiful, beautiful versions of stuff that was already on Red in the first place. Uh so much we could talk about, but man, what a joy to listen to that. 
It's not going to touch folklore for me, but it's up there as one of the best things that you'll hear. I, I totally agree. It's a, a fantastic album, and the idea that an artist can come back to her work a decade later and re-record it and make it feel both new and yet familiar is is a pretty impressive feat in itself. The fact that it's charting again, and the whole thing is just fascinating to me of what... Uh, what Swift is up to with these re-recordings. And, and it doesn't feel like just some kind of cash grab where she's just trying to get people to buy more records. Obviously, for those who've been following it, there's this huge issue that's been going on over the last few years that she's tried to get back rights to her masters, and so she's re-recording them. And so there's money involved, but it feels like uh, the two albums that, that have been re-recorded so far, that there's a, an incredible loving attention to detail in them that respects their integrity as albums. You know, she didn't go back to Fearless and make it sound like one of her more recent albums. Red, uh, which is that transitionary phase where she goes from country to pop, the album still feels exactly like that. Um, although, like you you were saying, I, uh, I, I started, I actually listened to the original Red for the first time in a number of years, right before the new one came out, I wanted to refresh myself on it. And there were a few songs on there that I thought, I don't remember this song. And I think I would have liked this album quite a bit more than I did if I'd remembered that song back when I first listened to it. And and I know you and I both shared that Red wasn't really one of our favorite of Swift's albums in the past. And, and listening to some of these songs, they're just brilliant. It, it's changed my perspective on the album. Whether I'm listening to the old version or the new version, some of the songs, uh, like we were talking before the show about Sad, Beautiful, Tragic, I, I think that song is way underrated. Uh, just the, the little details, like the way that as the instruments swell at the beginning of it, it sounds like a train approaching. And it gives that very distant feeling. Um, and then, of course, the, the centerpiece of Red being all too well. It's good to hear it re-recorded. It, it comes out very well. And then there's the 10-minute version, which adds a whole lot more to All Too Well. And, and the idea of actually an artist being willing to come back to one of her signature pieces like that, and, and not signature in the sense of, I knew you were trouble, or we're never ever getting back together, that that are also on Red, that are her pop hits that, that feel like sort of the, the things that she put on the album to to get the bigger audience and, and to appear on all the radio stations and all that. And, and they're fine songs, but but All Too Well feels like her artistic masterpiece of Red. And to come back to that and actually add to it is a pretty daring thing, and it, it, it works out well. Yeah, I think one thing that I really love, she's a great admirer of James Taylor, as we've talked about before, and she's named after James Taylor. And one thing that James Taylor said, and I might have said this on the show before, but one thing he said is that you don't really get anywhere close to the final form of a song until you've performed it about 20 times. and so. Taylor's doing all these songs again because she's trying to get to that final form, that final artistic form of what she's already done. And it really does add something. There is a there is a depth, there is a maturity to her voice that comes through in the lyrics that she's already written. When she redoes the duets with Ed Sheeran, um, especially Everything Has Changed, uh, there is a, a maturity in that, that song. There is a beauty in that song uh, that is deeper, that is more beautiful. I think Ed takes it... I don't know if he takes it down a full octave when he sings through that, but he, he changed his notes a little bit. He's a little bit deeper in the song, and he's less noticeable, but somehow it makes that re-recording of Everything Has Changed better. And then he does re uh, run later in the album, 
from one of the from the vault songs um and he just does a wonderful job just not getting in the way and letting the song breathe and you can really just with that song everything has changed you can really believe that these were two characters that actually fell in love um and that's what i appreciate about that song uh there's so much i appreciate i feel like i didn't even hear state of grace before i i there's two versions of State of Grace on this record, and it's just so beautiful, and I listened to it over and over and over. Um, I just couldn't get enough of certain parts of this album, and it's one that I want to keep coming back to. I already said nothing's going to top Folklore. I think it's true that Folklore is the pet sounds of this century, but Red is right up there. This re-recording of Red is right up there, and she's not going to hurt her legacy at all with this record. I kind of wonder if maybe for both of us, if part of the reason why we had missed it before is I know we both are, are fans of Speak Now, her album prior to Red, and there is enough of a shift, and some of that comes from Max Martin's involvement, I think, and sort of Swift's sense that she wanted to move in a, a more broadly pop direction. Maybe, it, maybe, at least for me, I think maybe it was just the jarring shift that was happening in the album versus um, versus her previous work. And and now with the filter of her other work out there and and folklore and, and evermore especially coming back to it, it feels more like it makes sense in the overall canon of Taylor Swift, so to speak. Right, because that that first official pop album was 1989, and then you had uh, Reputation, and then you had Lover, and then you had Folklore and Evermore. So seen backward from all that from the pop phase. If you're now here for the pop phase, you'll be here for Red, and you'll hear it in a new way. And I keep going back to my friends Daryl Hall and John Oates, because a lot of times they would do an album, and it wouldn't have that much commercial success the first time around, almost like they were ahead of the game. And when they got really famous in 1975 and 76, the music that got them famous in those two years was music that they had recorded in 1972 and 73. So sometimes you can get ahead of your own creative potential. And I think Taylor Swift might be one of those people that uh, we're kind of catching up to her and we're appreciating some stuff that she's done uh, sort of after the fact and looking looking back through the lenses of later records and other stuff that she's done. So it can happen. It happens. And even great artists can can put out something that isn't fully appreciated until much, much later. And I think Red is one of those things. I, I really believe this will cement its place as an album, of course, in Swift's canon, but also just generally the level of attention it's brought to tracks like All Too Well well beyond the original audience. If you think about probably the entire United States now has contemplated, at least for a moment, Swift's ill-fated scarf. And and so (laughs) uh, everything has changed perhaps for this album even a little bit. Uh, One thing that that struck me just as an observation, the the detail in re-recording these albums, it's getting the same treatment as as new releases such as Folklore. And and so this album is available in Dolby Atmos. And so I've been listening to it using Apple AirPods uh, that are capable of of decoding that. Uh, Apple brands it spatial audio. And and the sound quality of it is really, really incredible. Um, and it's kind of boggles my mind exactly how they do it, but you, you don't just hear stereo, but you can actually hear things that are off in the distance. And, and there was one or two points in listening to the, the new uh, Taylor's version of Red where I thought someone or something must have been saying something behind me because of the way they've mastered it. 
you actually feel enveloped in the sound stage as if you were sitting right in the middle of the stage with Taylor and her band playing. That's pretty amazing. The only point where I critique that is I actually think some of the tracks, like Everything Has Changed, almost fare better when I don't have it in Atmos and I'm, I'm just listening to it in stereo because it brings it a little bit more lo-fi. And there's something about a song like that, that the two of them are, are, are singing together as a duet, Swift and Sheeran. When it's lo-fi, it feels more like you can almost imagine these two musicians show up at a coffee shop and start singing to each other. When, when I was listening to it with the spatial audio, it, it did lose that. So some of the songs really benefit from it. Some of them, I, I'm almost more of a fan of it just in pure stereo, but it's really quite amazing that they can record it in such a way so you can really hear every instrument and every note and not just the instruments that Swift intended, but even the location of where they should be in position to your ears. It's really quite something. Well, one thing I wanted to say more about that was I'm not the sound techie that you are, but uh, I love that we can... Uh, that we can imagine ourselves within the song. And she's given us an, an opportunity to, like you said, sort of dwell in the songs. And the album is, in its own way, it's immersive, whether it's the sound or whether it's the lyrics. It kind of sweeps you up in it. And then you're you're connecting yourself to what's going on in the song. Uh, she has a special gift for that, to bring you along and to make you identify with what she's writing about and the stories that she's telling. That's a beautiful part of this record and one that I continue to appreciate. So I think you're right about some songs are great for the arena and some songs are better for the coffee house. But the truly gifted thing is, no matter where we are, she invites everybody to come along with her. And not to say that everyone loves Taylor Swift, but she has that ability, that magnetic power to potentially make you into one of those people that wants to go wherever she wants to take you. So it's an impressive thing. It's an impressive record. I know that we both love it and we're looking forward to what's coming next. Absolutely. Just one thing as we're thinking about what's next, I'll I'll throw out to you. Did you notice the echo um, back to the vault of fearless in the moment I knew. And I, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but in the moment I knew she comes to the refrain, which says, I, I believe it's, I would have been so happy. And the, one of the vault tracks from fearless is we were happy. I'm kind of curious to see if that plays out in some of the other vault tracks from future albums. If there's sort of this repeat theme of sort of this sad reflection on moments in the past where there was happiness that felt like it could last that, that fall apart. Both of those songs, The Moment I Knew and We Were Happy, I think you can't help but feel a certain ache for those times that we feel like there's a happiness that we can grip onto that doesn't last. And I'll be interested to see if that's just a coincidence or if there's going to be a theme of a song that actually comes straight at happiness in each of the Vault uh, collection. Well, she does love her Easter egg, and they're there even if I don't find them all. So (laughs) I'm looking forward to uh, what she comes up with, and I... I look forward to my fellow listeners helping me to figure out where she left all the Easter eggs. And I don't even like eggs, but that's a story for another podcast.
sounds like Christmas, but it also sounds like my dog ran away. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you'll find your dog um, and your dog at Christmas time, and it'll be just like part of a Hallmark movie. That's right. Now we want to sort of make a transition point. We've certainly been talking a lot about how creative Taylor Swift is and the way that she's applied creativity in reworking her album. And now we're going to talk about our very first guest ever on the show and talk about how that creativity flows through the liturgy of the church. And here we are, we're in Advent, we're looking towards Christmas, and there's such a neat opportunity because people are going to come to church that normally don't, and they're often going to appreciate the creativity and the artistic value more than the theology, at least at first. And so we thought it was a perfect time to have this conversation. Maybe you'd like to introduce our guest. Yeah, this is our very first guest on the show, and I'm very excited and honored to introduce Deborah Allender Lee. And she's going to talk to us about beauty and liturgy and evangelism and whatever else she wants to talk about. So welcome to the show, Deborah. Ah, it's nice to be here. Thank you for asking me. So um, that's a really big subject. Um, liturgy, creativity, evangelism, those are all big topics for me. The passions in my heart. Um, I think I've, one one thing I want to point out is um, one of the things about creativity and in the arts and music and things like that. We we get caught up in our culture so much with you know what about thinking, analyzing, breaking apart those kinds of things. And especially if we talk to um, non-believers or or even believers who have different views than us, that we get kind of trying to make an argument and prove a point. And one of the things that music and arts do is, in creative writing and things like that, is to bypass the conscious mind. And so, as we know, our culture has gotten more and more and more divisive, and we're all standing on our, our little platforms about what we believe, whether it's right or not, and we're all, we're all right and wrong about things. And, it, and there's no dialogue anymore. But what the real answer um, to bypass all that is, is beauty, because our conscious mind will listen to the arguments and we're kind of spending our time building our own argument, waiting for our turn to speak um, or yelling and screaming and not having, you know, um, a thoughtful thing at all. But what art and music and beauty do is they bypass that conscious mind and it goes mm. into the subconscious and it allows people, it allows the heart to grab hold of things. And it, and it opens door for change, whereas a and uh, even a good dialogue um, and a proper dialogue does not. Um, and it's kind of interesting because I'm a songwriter and um I did my, on my 50th birthday, I gave a concert and I had a, one of my husband's cello students was there and she fell in love with a song that I wrote and she's not a believer. Um, she said she tried to have faith and it never would work, but um, it's a song called I Will. I will go, I will die, I will give all I can. I'll, you know, it's, it's about deep commitment. I'll, you know, I'll leave the people I love. It's like, if you call me the mission field or, you know, whatever you call me to do, I will go. And she still raves about that song years later. And it surprises me because it's a very overt message about sacrificing your whole life for, for Christ. Um, and I've also found that agnostics are some of my big, biggest fans in my, with my songwriting. And, you know, whatever the Holy Spirit's doing in their life that makes them connect, <laughs> uh, I'm very thankful. Um, but it's it's just one of the things that I've just noticed that um, it can bypass all those barriers, uh, all the barriers against God. And and I think that's why, you know, people are drawn to liturgy. You know, there, there's a lot of in-depth to go. And, of course, everyone's idea of liturgy is very different. You know, I was a, my first exposure to liturgy was at a 
Presbyterian church that was very artsy. And it was not the historical liturgy that you find in with the Lutherans and the Catholics and the um, Episcopalians and Anglicans, where they have a common reading and they have a common structure. It was kind of written on the spot. But it was beautiful to me because it was participatory and it was something um, community building about it. When it's done well, um, I think liturgy does build community. And so we're, um, you know, as, as people go to, you know, Christmas uh, services this year, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of wild to me that, you know, they don't go to church any other time, but they go Christmas, you know. Right, yes. <laughs> and, um, and it's like, what draws them back? And the beautiful music is part of it, you know, some kind of sense of you're supposed to do it, I guess, you know, you know, mom, I tried kind of thing or whatever. And Satan's really busy um, trying to destroy that. I think that, I mean, part of it is, you know, just not, not seeing seeing it very very clearly with people, but you know the kind of the worship wars. You know, mm-hmm. I'm Catholic now. I was Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran before that, and um, you know, worship wars are different in each place, but they they exist because Satan doesn't want us to worship. And one thing that is um, a big passion of me because I didn't have good pitch discrimination when I was younger, so I was told, oh, you should never sing again, and. Um, until I went to college and the music people said, you know, um, you know, showed me that I did have a voice and in, and it was part of part of skills and training. But what I, I see over and over again, and I've had voice students who were told these things, too, that there's so many people making fun of people singing. And they're usually not musicians saying, oh, he's a horrible singer. She's a horrible singer. And I've seen it over and over again. And I just felt like that's a spiritual warfare thing. If, if Satan can keep people from singing, he can keep people from worshiping. And singing is what we're going to be doing in heaven for eternity. And so if I would like to encourage anybody, no matter how, how bad you feel like your singing is or how, how subconscious you're about it, you are about it, just keep doing it. Keep singing. And that would be a message for me for Christmas. When you're there listening to the music and if you're just going, just going for Christmas and just for, going for Christmas service and don't go normally, you know, I'm glad you're there and just just sing with everything, you know, with all the beautiful music and let the words sink in because it's it's just really beautiful. Yes. Yeah. The, one of my favorite parts about being there for a Christmas service is that since more people do know the songs and you have a fuller church, it's always so beautiful when you do hear everyone lifting up their voices. And that's a wonderful encouragement to, to anyone that might somehow hesitate feeling like they're not going to contribute well to the song because it's about being joyful before the Lord, right? Right. And I worked to the group home and the, um, you know, one of my most joyful memories of music, and I've had a lot of musical, you know, memories because I have a music degree and I've been in a lot of choirs and orchestra, I mean, orchestra bands and stuff. But um, it was in, we were going to the Christmas party with some of the residents and I was listening to some carols, you know, and the one guy was like, Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way, just monotone the whole time. And there was a Down syndrome guy, and he was like, these are adults. And he's like, at the same time, singing, jingle bell rock, jingle bell rock. And, jingle bell. <laughs> and it, others were singing just normally. And it was, to me, it was beautiful because it's the way it's mm-hmm. supposed to be. It's just, it was real and it was raw and it was sincere. And, you know, with all the times I've sung at the cathedral and, all the, I've even sang at St. Pat's Cathedral in New York um, with the choir. And, you know, I've been in these great places. And those are wonderful. Uh, you know, those are wonderful. But that joy of those guys singing, they're poorly sung by, you know, technical standards. Um, so, um, so whatever you're doing, just sing. 
this thing and mm. in your car in your in your house in your shower you know but, but especially at church i don't know what you think tim but i think uh we're going to have a recurring guest named deborah lee from this point forward so I, I think that sounds like a good plan i know there are a whole bunch of different avenues we could explore here but that's such a great encouragement right before christmas because people can put it to use right away right uh, they can add to that that beautiful sound and and get a preview of, of the joy to come through that so thank you deborah for sharing that uh, encouragement and we do definitely need to have you come back. In fact, would you like to stay on for the next segment? We're going to talk about Matthew chapter 12 in a moment. If you'd like to stick around for that, we'd love to have you stick around. Before we get there, we do need to talk about our second sponsor of the show today, which is Faith Tree Grow. Faith Tree Grow is a great place where you can interact with devotionals from local churches and be encouraged. Another wonderful thing to be doing this Christmas season is we seek to turn our hearts towards Jesus and reflect on the wonder of God's salvation. In fact, Faith Tree Grow this month is going through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going a chapter per day during Advent, thinking about the fullness of what God has done. Christmas is the start of a story. It isn't the end of it like we too often treat it, where, you know, everyone takes the tree down and moves on afterwards. We need to be seeing it as, here is God's movement towards salvation. He brings himself into the world, and we're looking at what he does in the world this month there. There's all kinds of additional stuff that's going to encourage you this holiday season. So please do check out grow.faithtree.com this season and throughout the year, throughout the week. You're disturbingly good at doing commercials. Why, thank you. As we mentioned right before the break, Faith Tree Grow is going through the Gospel of Matthew this Advent. It's a wonderful way to take this season of preparation and reflect on the gift that we receive in our Savior, what he's done for us, what he has taught us. And yes, we are about halfway through Advent now, but that doesn't mean you can't start right now, right in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew. This week we came up to Matthew chapter 12 and we thought we'd hang out there as we wrap up Zippy this week and talk about it a little bit. Jason, you had some things you wanted to say about Matthew 12. Yeah, I just had a couple different things. One thing is this is a parallel passage with what's going on in Mark 2. So when Jesus gets confronted by the the Pharisees, they say, you're breaking the law, you're breaking the law. But if you actually go and read the law back in the Old Testament, they're not breaking the law. Because back in Deuteronomy it said that poor people could go up and grab the grain, whatever they could grab, uh, and eat it to be satisfied. So this is another example of, you know, the the opponents of Jesus in the gospel adding thing to the word as it was given to the people of God. Um, and then, you know, he answers, Jesus answers, um, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So even if it were true that uh, they technically had broken the law, which they didn't, but even if it were true, he said, you know, I was the one that wrote it, so I can change it. Um, and I think that's what Jesus is saying uh, here. And then he talks about, uh, is it lawful for a man to rescue his sheep? You know, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Um, and that was his example after he heals uh, the man with a withered hand. 
So um, here, that's a lead-in to how much are the, the opponents of Jesus adding to the Word of God in the Old Testament given to the people, and a lead-in also to verses 18 through uh, 21 here, quoted from Isaiah. Uh, do you have a footnote on that, Isaiah, Tim? It is from Isaiah 42, 1 to 3. Isaiah 42, 1 to 3. So let's just read that little section, 18 to 21. It says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not wrangle or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick till he brings justice to victory, and in his name that will the Gentiles hope. So right there, Jesus is fulfilling uh the prophecies about himself, and he's taking the hope of Israel onto himself. And we get, you know, in my version, the RSV, uh, we get the Gentiles named specifically. And that's part of the good news of the gospel is that the good news is going to go out from Israel, and it's going to go out to everybody, not just Jews, but everybody in the world. And so when we're hoping in Christ, we're part of the promise that was made to God's people that they're salvation given to them through the prophets would go to the whole world. And that's through Jesus. And when we receive that mercy, that's a mercy that even reaches to us, no matter where we are um, and where we've gone. We are Gentiles, almost all of us, um, unless you know we're Hebrew somewhere in our line. But that's good news for us because we wouldn't have heard it had the apostles not gone out after this and proclaimed salvation in Jesus. So that's super encouraging. And we see the Holy Spirit also being proclaimed there in the prophecy, I will put my spirit upon him in verse 18. We can't forget about him. He's Absolutely. the one that, that makes us alive and gives us uh, joy and hope. It's funny you, you focus on the section on the Holy Spirit for uh, this particular episode because at my church, what we're preaching through for um, for Advent is the work of the Spirit in the story of Christmas. And I think we don't often spend a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit in the context of Christmas. But it's been really striking me how, if you look at it, it's really encouraging to be reminded of how the Spirit is at work in everything that we see there in the context that we know that God gives us His Spirit today, that He's with us. That is exactly how it flows out then that the Gentiles are being pulled in like ourselves. It's interesting when you think about, too, in in two different ways that with the the sections that you honed in on, we see where the Pharisees are using God's word incorrectly in a way that causes exclusion, and it's not drawing people into God's kingdom. You you see, first off, where they're looking for little slip-ups in in Jesus and his disciples and, and any way to cast them out, up to the point of even saying, here's a man who, who can be healed by Jesus, and it would be better that Jesus didn't. They want to somehow turn that into a Sabbath violation, which it clearly isn't. But they're, they're, they're so focused on how to build their walls to make themselves holier than everyone else that they're willing to actually hurt someone for that purpose. And then, of course, we're told once they, they see it happen and they can see the hearts and minds of people going towards Jesus, they're willing to kill the Son of God himself if it, that's what it takes to keep their turf safe. They're also using that, they're going to look, and even the disciples, to some extent, are going to struggle with this idea of including the Gentiles. Because while it's clear in the Old Testament that God intended the Gentiles ultimately to be blessed by Abraham's family, and and this is all part of the plan, it's not some kind of revision to it, 
they, they so want to somehow be able to hold on to a way to elevate themselves that they're willing to basically discard the mission that they were sent out into the world to do. And it's, it's just striking. And thankfully, the Spirit doesn't allow that. The Spirit doesn't, even when we do that today, because that's the, the thing I think that's challenging is we can see that in the Pharisees now and we can condemn them. But it strikes me how often I kind of want to hold on to something a little bit exclusive too. And the Spirit has to break down those walls in my heart and say, okay, this person who I disagree with, God loves that person and is calling that person to hear his gospel and be transformed by his Spirit and to be a part of his church and his kingdom just as much as anybody else. And I was reading, you know, in this about, of course, you know, it's really clear the hypocrisy, the legalism of the Pharisees. But one, it, it came to, you know, one thing that stood out at me is this whole idea of working on Sunday and keeping the Sabbath holy. And it's been something that's been on my heart lately because I'm just not sure exactly, you know, how to how to apply that in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, because we have, you know, we and I've been very legalistic in certain times in my life. Um, but the uh, the other side of that is complacency and not and just taking for granted that you're okay with God or that He's pleased with everything you're doing. Um, and in this world of everything's open on Sunday, you know, where, where's the line? You know, I have friends who take it very seriously and they will not, you know, go out and eat or anything on, on, on Sunday. And they keep that day, um, they keep that day as scripture says to keep it holy. And it, to me, it opens up a lot of questions because it, you know, it's talking about the wicked generation. Is that a sign of our, you know, our weakness is a generation because Sunday's just, just like any other day, you know, even if you're going to church, you go to church and is it wrong to go shopping on Sunday? And so, you know, so it's easy to put all the eggs in the basket of, oh, they're being too harsh. But there's also the basket of, oh, we're being too lax. Yeah, that's a, a really good point. Um, the, the answer, it seems like, to legalism that we often want to go after is just go flying in the other direction, right? And that's not what Jesus does here, I think, which is notable. Jesus doesn't say to the Pharisees when they, they complain about him working healings on the Sabbath, well, d- discard all that junk, I didn't really mean it or something. Rather, he's helping them to understand the true point of the Sabbath, which is something to do with the relationship that man and, and God have. It is a time to, to rest, and God models that rest at the beginning of Genesis, all these things. And instead, we say, well, we don't want to be legalistic, like you're saying, so then we just don't think about it at all. And, and I think that's a great point you're making. Deborah and I have a good friend who realized that one of the ways he realizes what God is actually communicating about resting on the holy day, on the Sabbath, whether it's Saturday for the people in the Old Testament or, or Sunday now for us Christians, is that he didn't need to be spending thousands and thousands of dollars at an NFL game on Sunday and then sneaking in church if he thought about it, you know? Mm. So that was, you know, if you're spending thousands and thousands of dollars on mere entertainment, you know, and then sneaking in church if you think about it, then maybe that's not aiming for what Jesus is aiming at here. But if somebody needs help, you know, I had a helper once. He told me, if your sheep falls into a pit, I'll be there. Uh, And you don't have to pay me on that day, but if you need me, I'll be there. So that was a way, you know, that's just healthy ways of of looking at it that honor the day, but aren't too strict about it. Right. Yeah. Like so much, Jesus is calling us to something that we struggle with as human beings, attention, right? I mean, when, when we're talking about a healthy way to look at the day, it ends up being harder in some sense to hold on to because it's really simple if we just say, you can't do anything and don't heal the man with the withered hand because we're going to keep this day holy, missing the point on the one hand. And it's really easy if we just say, oh, Sunday is just a day to do whatever I want. It doesn't matter. The, the way that follows 
Jesus's example challenges us to actually have to wrestle with it. And, and we don't like that often as human beings, do we? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, I, this has been, a, 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 I think, a really good conversation for us just to chew on and, and for our listeners to chew on. It's the sort of thing that's very hard to solve in a moment. And I think that is part of that wrestling, but it's something that we should just spend some time thinking about. And I think over a holiday when, in theory, we have a little time to rest, it might be th- good to think about what is the, the place for rest in our lives that God's intended and how do we use that to focus our hearts on Him? How do we use this whole season to focus our hearts on Him as well? Of course, we're going to have a lot of exciting things pulling at us and, and calling at our attention, but in the middle of it, we need to make sure that we're focusing on the one whom we're celebrating. And that's certainly, I know, all of our prayer for those listening. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but it's always great to, to share this time with you, Jason. And Deborah, thank you so much for being our first guest today. Thank you for asking me. It's a delight. Well, we are at the end of our time, and we'd like to remind you as we close that if you haven't already, please do subscribe to Zippy on your favorite podcasting source, whether it's Apple Music, it's the Amazon Podcast Store, whether you're you're on Spotify, wherever you get finer podcasts, we're there, and we would be honored to have you follow us and subscribe to us there so you never miss an episode of Two Christian Guys discussing news, culture, and the things that matter to you. And of course, we would also appreciate it if you tell your friends and family about us. You can invite them to visit zippythewondersnail.com and you can check out Jason's and my writing on Open for Business. Until next time, we hope you have a blessed Advent. We will talk to you again very soon.